get started, um, we're, well, we're a little early, I guess. We'll wait a couple more minutes so everyone can take their seats. What I will do is, people are coming to their seats, I'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning that we can gather together and learn more about your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have your grace and mercy, and we thank you, Lord, that you do equip the saints for all that you call us to do by your word. I do pray for not only the Sunday school, but also the sermon, Lord, as we look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, that we would be a people that don't go beyond what is written. And I pray for Bob, and I pray for our ears to be open, and that we'd be not just hearers, but doers of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as many of you know, we've had a little bit of a controversy here at Gospel of Grace, kind of an informal debate about a second blessing doctrine. And both this week and next week, I do want to spend some time on it. This doctrine, whether it's intended or not, really can be divisive because it divides Christians into two camps. Those who have had a second blessing experience sometime after conversion and those who don't. One of the roles that Bob and I have as pastors is to protect the flock. And today I intend to do that, to lead us both this week and next week into the truth as to what it means to be filled by the Spirit. And so we're going to have a data dump both this week and next week as to what the data of the Scriptures actually say. I'm going to do so in love. Uh, The disagreement that we have is with fellow brothers and sisters. And so that's the... In intended sense in which I disagree with this doctrine, but I want to begin by thanking Bill Fisher, who did send some of the source of this second blessing doctrine, which comes from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so I listened to several of his videos. One of them I listened to three times, and I'll be interacting with that and showing you his main contention and where I believe that he's uh, clearly off. So I want to begin by showing you what the issues are with Martin Lloyd-Jones and then I'll, because that's specific to some of the people here, as I proceed throughout the message, both this week and next week, I'll begin to hit generically the second blessing doctrine as it's taught. So I'm going to be focusing more in the beginning here today on Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I want to begin by giving you his central contention regarding 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And again, I know this because I listened to his message three times on this to make sure I understood it. Martin Lloyd-Jones regarding 1 Corinthians 12, 13, which says, By one Spirit we have been baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, and we've all been made to drink of one drink. Now, what he claims is that 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is only about regeneration. That's all that it's about. And that that text, in it you have the Holy Spirit is the agent who is doing the regeneration. After all, how is it that you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, as I'm going to show you, it is by the Spirit, but we can also say it's by the Father. Doesn't Jesus say, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him? So we're going to see it is a Trinitarian affair. And what I'm going to show you is what Martin Lloyd-Jones does in error is he forces the Holy Spirit to be the only agent involved here in regeneration in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Why? Because therefore you have a future second blessing in which Christ will be the agent and he will fill Christians who ask with a second blessing. So what I'm going to take issue with is Martin Lloyd-Jones actually has the least likely rendering of who the agent is of baptism 
in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So this is my contention. I'm going to juxtapose his position versus mine. I think the Bible is telling us that 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is primarily about the unity of believers. And I'll prove that to you here. Why is that important? Because Christ is the agent, the Holy Spirit is the means by which Christ uses to baptize his people. Think about the role of a carpenter. The carpenter is the agent, and if he is going to screw in a screw, he uses the means of the screwdriver to do so. That is the relationship over and over and over and over. Can I say it one more time? And over in the New Testament of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son are depicted as the agents who use the means of the Holy Spirit to accomplish their task. And you're going to see that's very important even when we come to Ephesians 5.18. If we're going to have a good reading of what it means to be filled, you'll see that it is also a Trinitarian affair, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's begin today. I want to begin by showing you the better reading of 1 Corinthians 12.13. If this text is not, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, primarily about regeneration, that's on the periphery. That's on the periphery. It's alluded to in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, 10 verses earlier. But the central issue is that even though that there are a diversity of gifts given by means of the Spirit, there is a unity because we are all one in Christ. That is the emphasis. It's on unity. So the irony is a text that's about unity is used now to divide Christians into two different camps. That's the sad irony. So let's begin by turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 4 through 5. And as you're turning there, let me explain the structure of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 as I understand it. Bob will be getting into greater detail as he comes into these texts himself later on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you will get there, Bob. We know. I know it takes me forever. I'm still in Matthew. What am I in? Six now. And, uh, but it's fun going verse by verse. So let me explain the outlay of verses, or excuse me, chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. Chapters 12 through 14 is where Paul has to deal with the issue of tongues. The issue of tongues was dividing the church at Corinth. As the great scholar in the book of 1 Corinthians, Gordon Fee, said, regarding tongues, he said, quote, they were singular in their emphasis and they were disorderly in expression, unquote. In other words, what Gordon Fee is saying is the whole church focused not on any of the other gifts other than tongues. And so tongues was the sine qua non for them if you were in the spirit. It was the essential ingredient. If you didn't have tongues, you were frowned upon. The other issue at Corinth was that they were using them in a disorderly way. Paul is going to show us in 1 Corinthians 14 that if you use them, you have to have an interpreter. Okay, so that was the primary issue. Now, in chapter 12, he introduces the issue generically. He says, look, the Spirit gives many gifts, but we have one body. Chapter 13, he shows where it's all going, love. The point of the gifts is so that we would love as Christ does. Chapter 14, then, he gets into the specific issue of taking the Corinthians on as they elevate tongues above every other gift. Let me show you an example. 1 Corinthians 14, 4 through 5. Here Paul says, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Notice the contrast, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Stop there. What's the difference between the tongue and the prophecy? Well, the tongue is that which is unintelligible 
the prophecy is intelligible. And by the way, I'm going to hold comments and questions until I get through slide 12. Then I'm going to open it up. Next week we'll have far more time, I would imagine, for questions, answers, comments, objections, etc. So, again, the speaking in tongues edifies a person, but the prophecy edifies the whole body. Notice verse 5. He says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater, notice the term megos in Greek, greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Dear ones, the point that Paul is making regarding tongues is that it ends up for those outside of the speaker, gibberish, which is unintelligible. But prophesying, giving Scripture the implications and applications of Scripture and the correct interpretation of Scripture is something that edifies the entire body. So Paul is saying then, why are you elevating tongues when in fact prophesying is something that elevates the whole church? Ironically, when you get to Pentecostalism, what is the supreme evidence of a second blessing? Speaking in tongues. So it's contrary precisely to what Paul's concern is. Precisely. The second blessing doctrine. Okay? So now what I want you to do is now is turn back to the beginning. So chapter 14 is where Paul starts to really get at the issue. But chapter 12, he begins. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. And there, I'm going to read this section because you're going to see this is not about regeneration at its core but primarily about unity, even though there's a diversity of gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. Let's look at that together. Now, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 3, please turn your Bibles there. I want everyone to see this. Notice verse 1. It begins by Paul saying, now concerning. The Greek construction there, peri-day, is a grammatical discourse marker. Why is that important? Because it is a way in which the author of the Bible, whether it's Paul, whether it's Matthew, they show you that they're addressing a new subject. And we're going to see this in the Olivet Discourse. I've mentioned this probably ad nauseum hundreds of times to this class. Jesus constructs his whole Olivet Discourse with Perry Day. And it shows that now we're talking about a new concern, a new issue, a new subject that he had to address. Why? Because it was being distorted by the Corinthians. So notice what he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Stop there. Notice the term led, ago. That's the term in Greek. And the idea is they were being led by some spirit into paganism, but now they're going to be led, as his point is in verse 3, to Christ by means of the Spirit. Verse 3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so whatever spirits that they were having, if there was not a confession of Christ, that was not a valid spirit. So the people who are coming out of this pagan temple worship at Corinth needed to know that if they were not confessing Christ, this was a spirit that was probably one that had been leading them astray prior. Now, as we get into verses 4 through 11, and by the way, right there in verse 3, before I move on, notice the implication is there is regeneration. The spirit is the one who brings us to faith in Christ. 
But I'm going to show you it is the means of the Spirit. The Father is the one who's seen his drawing, and he does so by means of the Spirit to bring us to faith in Christ. Now, let's look at verses 4 through 11. And I want you to see how many times the term varieties is used. Here we're talking about the plurality of gifts that are given by the Spirit. Verses 4 through 11, he says, Now there are varieties, the term there, diarsis, is literally used three times here. He says, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. Notice how many times Spirit is used. And to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another the effecting of miracles. And to another prophecy. And to another distinguishing of spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. And to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit, notice the unity works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. I want you to think about what we've just seen in that text, many gifts. Three times the term varieties is used. So now what Paul is going to do in verses 12 through 13, here's the crux issue, is he's going to talk about the many gifts brings the unity of the body because it comes from one spirit. So the focus in verse 13 is not on regeneration as Martin Lloyd-Jones contends, But it's about all of these diversity of gifts. You have the unity of the body. Notice the explanatory 4, verse 12. He says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ, meaning the body of Christ. So there, let's stop there. Paul is making a simple analogy. Does your body have many components? Yes, but it's also a unity. That's precisely the point that he's making here. He's just making an analogy. Then he gives another explanatory four. The issue is still on the unity despite the diversity of gifts. Verse 13, that's the point. For by one, that's the first time he uses one, one spirit. We were all baptized into one body. Second time he uses one. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The third time he uses the term one. So again, the emphasis... And the point that he's making is not regeneration in verse 13. That's on the periphery. The focus is that even though we have a multitude of gifts, we have, in fact, a unity of the body. That's the grand point. Now, why is that important? Because it's precisely this unity that Martin Lloyd-Jones attacks. It's precisely that. Why? Because you're going to have some Christians who will have the filling of the Spirit at some second blessing some later period in their life, and others who do not. Is that the emphasis of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13? No. Is Paul's emphasis on regeneration where the the Spirit is the agent of regeneration? No. So, again, why does Martin Lloyd-Jones do that? He does that so if the Spirit is the agent in regeneration, there still remains a second blessing in which Christ will fill with the Spirit those who ask. And therefore, it's open to all, but only some end up partaking in it. That's the idea. Now, let me point up my other bullet points here. 
Again, for Martin Lloyd-Jones, notice on the screen there is a future filling for those who ask. What I would claim is there's no future filling experience in the sense that the second blessing doctrine proponents have it since we already have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And I will show you, it probably won't be till next week, how many times it says in the scriptures we are not lacking. That we're equipped for how many good works if we have the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.17, all good works. How many blessings were we blessed with according to Paul in Ephesians 1.3? Every. Every blessing. How many are we lacking? None. None. What are we able to not to do by having the scriptures? Nothing. So what I'm going to show you is, no, we do have the fullness. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones says many Christians are lacking. The Bible says explicitly, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, no Christian is lacking. Paul speaks for Christ. The word of God was given to him by means of the Spirit. The Spirit is telling you, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, and by the way, it uses the term charisma, the term gift. In our gift, we are not lacking. So are we going to go with the Spirit-inspired scriptures, or are we going to go with Martin Lloyd-Jones or a Pentecostal teacher? That's really the question we're going to be asking. So with that, I want to move on to some major points that I want to get into. And again, we'll kind of go slow. It'll be a little nerdy at first, but it'll get better. (laughs) Number one, being filled by the Spirit is not an experience, but it is an ongoing submission by the believer to the doctrines and deeds commanded in Scripture. Being filled with the Spirit, as you will find out, is not a mystical experience. It is not an ecstatic experience, but rather it is one in which every believer is called to be dominated in your thinking by the doctrines of Christ. How do you know those? Through the Scriptures. Rather than the debauchery of our age. Three Ds. Dominated, Doctrines of Christ, second D, rather than the third D, the debauchery of the age. Three Ds. What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Dominated in your thinking by the doctrines of Christ rather than the debauchery of the age. I'll prove that to you. That's precisely what Paul means by when he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. It's precisely what he's saying. So is that for some Christians? Are some Christians, it's okay for them to engage in the debauchery of the age, but other Christians are called to be dominated by the scriptures? No, it's something It's for all Christians. That's the point. Number two, being baptized by Christ into the Holy Spirit leads to our gifts. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is ultimately about. Christ is the agent who baptizes us in the Spirit, who is the means by which we get the gifts. So what did you do to get the various gift that you have from the Lord? Nothing. What did you do to be regenerated? Nothing. It's a monergistic work of God. He sovereignly, the Father, by means of the Spirit, brought you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and dispensed gifts to you. It's a monergistic work. Now, I don't really like to use the term synergistic In this next bullet point, and I'll explain, I'll qualify. But being filled by the Spirit leads to bearing good fruit, which I am claiming is synergistic. But we have to understand, when I say synergistic, still the Spirit is the one who does it. The only point is that because you and I have been regenerated, think about what does regeneration mean? Think think of the term circumcision of the heart. 
Wasn't the point that God would take uncircumcised hearts, those who could not respond to God, and circumcise them, taking away our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh? Now, heart of flesh, you and I don't want to read into that because it's not the point that Jeremiah was making, that somehow you and I have a fleshly heart in the sense of sinful. But rather, the distinction is between the stone and the flesh. The stone can't respond to God. The fleshly heart can't. So believers are precisely those who then therefore have what? We have a responsibility. Because you and I have been regenerated, you and I, we are living in the spirit, but you and I can go back to the old realm, not positionally, but we can say, you know, I'm a little sick of the doctrines of Christ. I'd like to live it up for the weekend. I'm going back to the doctrines of debauchery. What Paul is saying, no, you're to continuously be moved by the spirit, dominated in your thinking by the doctrines of Christ rather than the debauchery of this age. That's what the call is. And so, yes, this is something we have a responsibility to do. And it's not for some Christians. It's for every Christian. Number four, all Christians are given the Holy Spirit, and all Christians are to be continuously filled by the Holy Spirit. What's very interesting in Ephesians 5.18, the command is in the present tense. Yes, the present tense can denote just a generic command, but the emphasis is always on ongoing action. The idea is that this is something that's to happen throughout our lives. Why is that important? Because it really, I think, excludes some secondary experience once and for all. As if you can look back, hey, November 3rd, I had an experience, I'm spirit-filled. No, this is something we're continuously to do. And again, it's a call to obedience. The call to obedience to be dominated in our minds by the doctrines of Christ rather than the debauchery of this age isn't for some. It's for every Christian. Okay, now what I want to do is get into, and this will get a little nerdy, but I promise it will bear fruit, no pun intended, in your understanding of how the scriptures, or I should say how the Trinity works in the scriptures. And it's going to apply all the way into Ephesians 5.18. Let's ask ourselves again the question, who is the baptizer in 1 Corinthians 12.13? That's the central issue I'm having with Martin Lloyd-Jones. He is contending that it is only the Spirit who is the agent. And therefore, if he's the agent, it must be regeneration. And therefore, there's a second blessing where Christ will be the agent who will fill with the Spirit those who ask. What I'm saying is, no, the agent is clearly Christ. Let me show you. What we're really interpreting, let me point to the screen. Notice that preposition by. That preposition by has three possibilities. The preposition is an in Greek. We could render it agent, that it was by the agency of the Spirit that we were all baptized. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones claims. Second option is we could render it means, by or with. Okay, now what would be the difference between agent and means? Again, let's take an example. You have a carpenter. He is going to fix the door. He is the agent who fixes the door. He uses the means of a screwdriver to work the screw, the, the screw through the hole. The agent is the carpenter. The means is the screwdriver. Now, when I use the term means, it can also be not just impersonal, but personal. So, for example, a job needs to get done on a construction site. The owner dispenses his agent, the foreman. The foreman uses the means of a carpenter on his team to get the job done. 
That's precisely what I'm claiming is that in the scriptures you will see over and over and over again that it's the Father and the Son that are the agents by means of the Spirit that accomplish various salvific acts. We'll see it over and over again. Okay? The third option is that it is sphere. What I'm going to show you, these are not mutually exclusive. And I'll show you in the next slide why that is. And so why is this important? Because Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying in our controversy before us that the Spirit is the agent. I'm going to show you that this is the least likely. In fact, I find it just impossible. But that's not at all what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Dan Wallace, the great Greek scholar, says, well, the Spirit is probably means. Okay, that's how, what he holds to. Gordon Fee says the Spirit is probably locative or sphere. What I want you to see is that both of these are not mutually exclusive. Now, let's just think about water. Do you remember recently I baptized Rick Kaufman? And couldn't you say I did it in the sphere of the lake? He was baptized in the sphere. He was in the lake. If you're at a stadium, you're in the sphere of the football stadium or the baseball stadium. Rick Kaufman was deposited. He went under the water. He was in the sphere of water. But I also could say that I baptized him by means of water. After all, I didn't baptize him by means of sand or dirt. You could say, yeah, you were using water. Well, yeah, that's right. He was, in fact, under the water. He was... So these aren't mutually exclusive. But if we ask, did the water do the baptizing? No. That is not an option. Water is not the agent. Are you with me? All right, so... Let's look at the promise that's being fulfilled in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It goes back to the promise that John the Baptist gave while he was baptizing. John 1, 33. John says, I did not recognize him. That's the Messiah. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, let's start with John the Baptist. Who is the agent doing the baptism? And you'll notice I color-coded this for help. Let's just go back. Agent is red, right? Aha, I tipped you off. The agent is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is baptizing in water. Now, here I think sphere is the most likely option. Why do we know that? Because, for example, in Matthew 3.16, it says that Jesus... Anabino came up out of the water. You don't come up out of something that you're not immersed in. Are you with me? Uh, think about Acts 8.38. You have the Ethiopian eunuch. He is baptized. It says that they went down into the water. The idea is they were immersed. They were in the sphere of the water. So I think that that's precisely the issue. Now, does it mean, could we say this is also means that John baptized using water? or with water, or by water in the sense that it's means. Yes. They're both, they're both true. It's in the sphere of the water. It's by means of the water. But can we say that the water is the agent doing the baptizing? No. Why can we not say that? Because John the Baptist is. All of a sudden, we've, we've switched the screwdriver, and we make him the agent, and we take the carpenter and make him the means. We're not reading well. Now, why is that important? Because it's contrasted, I should say, likened to the work of Christ, the one who comes and baptizes. By the way, this is a participle. 
the one who baptizes. Who is that? It's not the Father, and it's not the Spirit. It's Christ. Therefore, he's the agent, and he's baptizing what? In the sphere, but also by means of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit the agent who's doing it? No, no more than is the water the agent who's doing the baptizing. Are you with me? So in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we certainly have the fulfillment of this. So let me just put up some bullet points. N, which is the preposition we're debating. Again, we're debating the phrase by the Spirit. The preposition N, I'm saying in 1 John, or excuse me, in John 1.33, is most likely sphere, but it can also imply means. They're not mutually exclusive. But it cannot imply agency. It can't mean that. Okay, so as we apply that then to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, I'm going to use the rendering of Dan Wallace here. But again, I'm using means. Again, it's blue. But I am not excluding sphere. They're both true. It says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. This is precisely the baptism that John was referring to. That Jesus is the implied agent in this passive verb who baptizes all of us by the means of the Spirit into one body. And the proof of this is we are made to drink of one Spirit. No, notice we're not drinking of one Christ. We're made to drink of one Spirit. Why? Because the imagery of the Spirit is that God the Father would one day pour it out. Doesn't Jesus say in John chapter 7 that if you come to him... You'll have living waters, the Spirit, that will flow from you. So that's part of the imagery. And so we have this unity because Christ has placed every believer in the sphere of the Spirit and by means of the Spirit into the one body. That's the idea. And so over and over in the Scriptures, either the Father or the Son is the agent who does the baptizing by means of the Spirit. John the Baptist said, we saw it, John 1.33, we see it in Matthew 3.11, we see it in Mark 1.8. Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the agent. John 14.26, the Father, Jesus says, will send the Holy Spirit. We see in Acts 2.33, Jesus is the one who sent the Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute, I thought it was the Father. Well, yes. The Father and the Son are the agents who send the Spirit, but the Spirit is the means by which you and I have been baptized. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, the Father gives gifts. Ephesians 4, 8 through 11, Jesus gives gifts. In fact, I want to build on this. Isn't it interesting in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 5, I'm going to show you, remember, that's all about the spiritual gifts. The Spirit, I'm claiming, is the means by which we have our gifts. Notice Paul says, now there are a variety of gifts. Remember that term varieties used three times. So the point in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is to go from the variety, many gifts, but to the unity of the body. That was the point. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. My point is the Spirit is the means, it's the screwdriver that the agent God the Father is using to gift his body. Now, why do I say that? Isn't it interesting later on, God the Father is alluded to as the giver of these gifts. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, 28. It says, and God, that would be a reference to the Father, 
has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts. Stop there. Does everyone see the term gifts? Same term that's used up here, the charisma, the spiritual gifts. So here it's God the Father who is giving the gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And that's not exhaustive. So again, in the scriptures, it's God the Father, the agent, by means of the Spirit that's dispensing gifts. But you know what? We can say the same thing of Jesus. In fact, let me show you something very interesting. Now, you've got to take note of my color coding on this one. Here the color coding is, again, I'm showing God is the Father is the agent in red. And everything in green is a gift that he's given. Notice this, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. So God is the agent, the Father, who is dispensing his gifts. And again, as we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, it was by means of the Spirit. What's very interesting is all the gifts that you see in green are the same gifts that Christ gives in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, 8, who is it that ascends and gives gifts to men? As, he, as Paul cites Psalm 68, 18, it's Christ. In fact, he goes on to say, notice verses 10 through 11, he who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens. Now let's stop there. Who is it the one who has ascended? Was that the Holy Spirit who ascended? Was it the Father who ascended or was it Christ? It was Christ. He's the one. So notice in verse 11, by the way, I'm sorry, did I miss a... Yeah, here I missed this part. So that, here's the purpose, that he might fill all things. By the way, this plays into us being filled by the Spirit. And I'll show you why later. Notice verse 11, though, it says, And he, that's still the one who ascended, that's Jesus, what did he do? Well, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets... Some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. Look, he's now giving the gifts that the Father has given. And guess what? He does it by means of the Spirit. So whether it's the Father or the Son, they are the agents of depositing the gifts to the church, and they do so by means of the Spirit. One of the great controversies in church history happened over a phrase called the... uh, Philoquy uh, clause of the Nicene Creed. How many of here have ever heard of the Nicene Creed? Many of you have. In the Nicene Creed, there's a spot that says that the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. The phrase and the Son, the Latin phrase for that is philoquy. It literally just means and the Son. Well, the debate in church history was is the Holy Spirit sent only from the Father? Or does he proceed from both the Father and the Son? And this created such a schism in the church that in the year 1054 A.D., the Eastern Orthodox Church split from the Western Church. There was a split. And by the way, I think the Western Church is right on this. The Western Church said, no, the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. The idea is that the Father and the Son are seen as the agents who use the means of the Holy Spirit to accomplish their tasks. And it's over, and it's over again. Think about this. John 6, very famous passage. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Does everyone see the term draws? The term there, elkuo, is a very strong verb. It's not a wooing. 
In fact, it's used for people drawing their sword out of their scabbard. I remember hearing a debate with R.C. Sproul who used that. He said, how many look down at their sword and say, come on, sword, come out of there. You've got to go get the thing, right? Um, what about water in a well? Can you woo water? Can you woo the bucket that contains it? No, you've got to go get that rascal. You've got to drag it out of there. That's the idea, is that the Father is the one who's going to bring dead sinners to faith in the Son. But wait a minute. I thought in John chapter 3, Jesus said it was the Spirit. That unless you're born of water and Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, wait a minute. Is there confusion? I, I thought it was the Spirit in John 3. Now we're seeing it's the Father in John 6. The Father is the agent who uses the means of the Holy Spirit to regenerate and bring people to faith. It's all over the place. Think about 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Here's the means. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by means of the Holy Spirit. God the Father is the agent. He uses his screwdriver, although it's, again, personal means. He uses the means of the person, of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to accomplish salvation. Dear ones, why am I laboring this point? Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying that 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is focused only on regeneration. That is not true. It's focused on unity. And the reason he wants it to be only about regeneration is so that the Holy Spirit is the agent who does it. And therefore, there remains an agent in the future, namely Jesus, who will baptize you with the fullness of the Spirit or give you the fullness of the Spirit if you ask. No, dear ones, the 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is not about regeneration. That's in the periphery. It's about out of the diversity of the gifts, there's a unity. And the agent depicted is not the Holy Spirit. It's the worst option of all. The agent is Jesus Christ, just as John the Baptist had foretold years earlier. Dear ones, what this means then is every single Christian, it says all were baptized, passed. It's a, participle, or excuse me, it's a passive voice verb, meaning the implied agent is Christ. But this says we were all baptized. So what we've just concluded is every single believer, every one of you, has been baptized in the sphere of the Spirit or by means of the Spirit. None of you are lacking the Spirit. Now, for those on the filling side, they will say, well, that's true. Every Christian has the Spirit, but not every Christian is filled by the Spirit. Well, what I'm going to do is turn to the one text that actually commands. It's the only one in the Bible where we're commanded to be filled by the Spirit. And we're going to learn, again, this means to be dominated by the doctrines of Christ in our minds rather than the debauchery of this age. Let's put up Ephesians 5.18 and let's look at it. So now we're going from everyone's baptized. We know that. We've established every Christian is baptized in the Spirit by the agent of Christ through the means of the Holy Spirit. But now let's look at filling. Is this for some or for all? We will see it's clearly for all. Ephesians 5.18, Paul gives us command. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. First of all, I want to talk about a contrast that we see between being drunk with wine, Paul says, for that is dissipation and being filled with the Spirit. So we're going to contrast the red and the, the blue. Notice when Paul commands not to be drunk with wine, he says this leads to dissipation. The term dissipation, asotia, 
is a, it's an alpha privative put on a word that we have. The verbal form is sozo. Sozo means to save. And so in a sense, the term dissipation is without salvation. The way it's typically understood in the culture of the day in the first century probably would have been debauchery. And that's why I'm using the term debauchery. It's debauchery. If you're drunk with wine, it often leads to debauchery, which is living for sinful passions, the doctrines of the world. Okay, that's the idea. So in other words, who teaches the sinful passions? Well, the world does. So don't live like that, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Now, what's very interesting is, let's focus on this red for just a little bit more. What's very interesting is when he says, do not be drunk with wine, isn't it interesting that that occurred in Ephesus where you had a Dionysus cult? Dionysus was the god of wine. And what's very interesting is he was depicted as the son of Zeus. He's the god of fertility. He's the god of wine. He's also, listen to this, the god of insanity. He's the god of ritual madness. And he is the god of religious ecstasy. So many of the ancients, the ancients in their time would use drugs and they would use alcohol to put themselves in an altered state of consciousness so that they could reach into the heavens and become part of the spiritual realm. In fact, today, you'll often see people buying at the liquor store spirits, right? That, that's kind of the idea, I think, is that they want to contact the spiritual realm. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, one of the deeds of the flesh is sorcery. The term pharmakeia comes from the term where we have from pharmacy. It's the idea of using drugs to contact the spiritual realm. That's the idea of sorcery. So in Ephesus, precisely the place where people were drinking to get into contact with the spirit realm, Paul says, don't do that. You're not going to be dominated by debauchery in your mind. You're going to be dominated in the doctrines of Christ from the scriptures given to you by the spirit. So you're going to think like those who belong to Yahweh, not Dionysus. That's the idea. That's the whole point. So the idea is then we're not under the influence of alcohol. We are under the influence of the Spirit. Again, in our minds. All right? So think about this. When he says, but be filled, that's an imperative. It's a command for all Christians. It's in the present tense, accentuating its ongoing. It's to continuously be filled. Now, why is that important? Don't read past that. If you're going to have a one-time experience in the future where you had a second blessing experience, you would expect something like a perfect, something that would denote a one-time or a, maybe it would be a, a pluperfect. But you wouldn't expect a present tense. You wouldn't expect this idea of ongoing action. But that's precisely what we have here. The other thing I want to point out is, again, this being filled with the Spirit, as we're going to find out, means that we are dominated in our thinking, in our minds, by the doctrines that come from the Scriptures rather than the debauchery that comes from this world. And I want to prove that to you. I want you to see this. And before we do so, I want to show you again how the whole Trinity is involved in us being filled so that we think like Christ, not the world. It's a Trinitarian affair. And I'm going to show you how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all involved in this filling. And interestingly enough, God the Father is an agent, God the Son is an agent, and by means of the Spirit, 
We are to think like Christ, not the world. So turn your Bibles to a hinge verse, a hinge prayer in Ephesians 3.19. In Ephesians 3.19, we see this call to be filled with the fullness of God. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians 3.19. Ephesians 3.19. Now here's where our work that we've done with that preposition where we see that the Father and the Son are the agents who by means of the Spirit baptize us. Okay, this is where this work will pay off. Ephesians 3.19, notice Paul says, this is his desire for all Christians and to know the love of Christ. Is, by the way, is that for some or all Christians? It's for all. Every Christian is to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Does everyone see the fullness of God there is a reference to God the Father. Okay, now what does it mean to be filled the same term, by the way, that's being used here, being filled with the Spirit, what does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? I think it means to be filled to the full with His moral attributes, His communicable attributes. That as God loves, we love. As He shows mercy, we show mercy. As He doesn't steal, we don't steal. As He doesn't speak with a forked tongue, you and I don't speak with a forked tongue. As He is holy, we are holy. Jesus says, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. It's that idea. So you and I are to think as he does, to be filled with the fullness of God. All right, now, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4.10. We're going to see now the God the Father is certainly the agent of this. He wants us to be filled with the fullness of God. Now we see that Christ is the agent also who fills us with gifts. Notice Ephesians 4.10. He, this is Christ who descended, is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens. Here's the purpose. Why did he do that? so that he might fill all things. Notice the term fill. Why? Because he gave gifts to men. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. He gave the gifts so that we may be filled. So God the Father is an agent of this filling. God the Son is an agent of this filling. And now Paul is saying, by means of the Spirit, right, be, be, be filled. That's the whole point. And so we see the same scenario when it comes to regeneration. God the Father uses the means of the Spirit to regenerate us. We see the sending. I'm sorry, I'll come to it after I'm done. I'm almost done. So that, that's the point is I want you to see that this idea of God the Father or God the Son being the agent and the Son being the means is seen almost everywhere. So the big picture then in this text is that every Christian is commanded to be again, dominated in their thinking by the doctrines of Christ rather than the debauchery of the world. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit. Now, let me prove to you that that is exactly what it means to be filled by the Spirit by showing you a parallel passage. I'm going to show you that this being filled with the Spirit is not an ecstatic experience. It is not a secondary experience in which you and I have some religious ecstatic uh, experience that comes upon us. That's not what it's being referred to. Let me show you a parallel to this text. Ephesians 5.18 again says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Well, if you're to read on in Ephesians 5.19, we are those who speak to one another in the Scriptures. We speak to one another in Psalms and spiritual songs, verse 19. Then if you get into verses 22 through 27, well, I'm going to keep going for the sake of time. 
Verses 22 through 27, we're going to see that husbands are called to love their wives, and wives are going to submit to their husbands. When we get to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children are going to obey their parents. Well, lo and behold, that's exactly the structure of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3.16, notice the command. This is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Again, in the present tense, this is to be something that continuously comes upon us. Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. What I'm claiming is that phrase, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, is exactly synonymous with the idea of being filled with the Spirit. If you want to know what it means to be filled with the Spirit, it's identical to having the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Why? Well, notice, what does Paul say? Up here, right after being filled with the Spirit, you speak to another with psalms and spiritual songs. What does he say here? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's exactly what Paul said in verse 19. Isn't it interesting? After that, Paul in Ephesians 5, 22 through 27 said, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's as you see in Colossians 3.18, right after this. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents. It's identical. It's the identical structure. What does that mean? That means, more than likely, what Paul is saying here is really synonymous with what he's saying here. What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit rather than being drunk with wine? If you're drunk with wine, you are being dominated by the doctrines of the world. It leads to debauchery. You're dominated in your thinking by debauchery. But if you are filled with the Spirit, so consumed are you with the Scriptures that you're dominated by the doctrines of Christ. And isn't that precisely why Paul said earlier in Colossians 3, focus therefore on things above rather than things on the earth. The implication is the things on the earth are the things of debauchery. The things above are the things of Christ. So to be filled with the Spirit is to have the word of Christ inform everything that we do so that we think like Christ, we act like Christ rather than the world. This is for every Christian, not some. This is ongoing, not a one-time experience. Everything that is actually being taught in the scriptures is antithetical to the second blessing doctrine, whether it's Pentecostal, whether it's Wesleyan, whether it's Charismatic, whether it's Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's completely opposite. They say it's for some. Paul says it's for all. Paul says it's by means of the Spirit. They say it's by the agency. It, It just goes on and on. The point in Ephesians 5.18 is that it's not a one-time experience. It's ongoing. Second blessing says, no, it's an experience that some Christians will have that changes their lives. Okay, now, to be filled then means to be dominated by. This is not a sense of euphoria. It's not an experience of a unique anointing. It's nothing like that. The idea of being filled... With the Spirit means to be dominated in our minds with the doctrines and righteousness of Christ from His Word. That's what it means. Number two, the command to be filled in the present tense implies ongoing action. This precludes a future momentous experience. It's not what's being talked about, some future religious experience. Now, let me come back to this idea of being filled means to be dominated. Over and over again in the Scriptures, being filled, especially in the Gospels but also in the Epistles, 
means to be dominated in one's mind, to be so influenced in one's mind that you can't do anything but. So, for example, Luke 5, 26, people were filled with fear. What does that mean? Well, that means they were so dominated in their thinking that fear consumed them. That's the idea. Uh, Luke 6, 11, the Pharisees and the scribes were filled with rage. meant they were dominated in their thinking with rage towards Christ and, and uh, those who follow him. Uh, look at Acts 5, 3. Satan so filled Ananias' heart that he is willing to lie. He's dominated by the lie from Satan rather than the doctrines of Christ and the love for Christ. Acts 5.17, the high priest was filled with jealousy. Phil, he was so filled with jealousy that it dominated his thinking so that he persecuted Christ and his people. That's the idea of Acts 13.45. The disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. They're dominated in their thinking with joy that comes from salvation and the doctrines of Christ. And this goes on and on. Uh, John 16.6, the disciples' hearts were filled with sorrow upon hearing that Jesus would leave them. It means they weren't thinking right. Anytime you see them filled with sorrow or fear, they're not thinking right. Why? Because that has dominated their thinking. To be filled by the Spirit means to be dominated by the doctrines of the Spirit. Where do those doctrines come from? That comes from the Scriptures. That's why we're called in Romans 12, 2, to not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. As you and I understand the scriptures, we think differently and we are to act differently. That's precisely the point of being filled by the Spirit continuously. That I'm carried along by the doctrines of Christ, focusing on the things above, not the things of the earth, so I don't live for debauchery in the excesses of sin in this world. That's precisely what Paul has called us to, and that is a responsibility not for some Christians. It's a responsibility for all Christians. Now, we'll come to more data. I've got uh, 10 more slides after this for next week, but I want to stop at this point, and I know we only have a short time. I'll have much more time for comments, questions, questions objections, etc. cetera, uh, next week. Anybody? I saw um, we had a hand. Oh, Laverne. Laverne has a, a comment. Oh, hey, Dell. Good to, good to see you. Cheryl? Actually, I have several comments, but I'll just do one for now. Yeah. I just want to understand, how do you reconcile when Jesus died and rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples in the upper room, and he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Spirit. Yes. And then he said to them, go and wait for the promise of the Father, yes. which will come later. And that was when the tongues of fire appeared on them, and they spoke in tongues in this example. Yes. They were, and that is the upon, the EPI, epi, of the three relationships that we have with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. The E-N was when he breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. And then the Epi came when the Holy Spirit, with tongues of fire, came upon them in the upper room as they waited for the promise of the Father. Excellent, Laverne. Let me ask you this. Let me just stop you there. Does the Holy Spirit, is the promise to come after Jesus glorified at Pentecost or does it come before? The promise of the Spirit for us as Christians? No, I'm, saying, I'm saying when, when you're talking about that John passage, when he breathed upon them, 
Does that spirit, the Holy Spirit, come upon them then? No. Okay. The, no. The epi, epi as you say, <laughs> the yeah. epi happens, happened in the upper room when Jesus instructed them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And that word there is to come upon them. That's the epi. Right, but, but I'm, I'm sorry, but when does that spirit come? That's my point, is doesn't that come at Pentecost then? Isn't that the whole point of it? Yes, because, it comes at Pentecost. Right, so let's just look at this one. Uh, we got Jevin, John seven thirty nine. It says, but this he spoke of the spirit. Remember, this is where Christ had just said that waters of living, our flowing li living waters would proceed from them if they would come to faith in him. And then the parenthetical statement here is from John. John's explaining what he meant by that. That was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed... By the way, how many would receive it? Well, those who believed. Not some. Who was going to receive the Spirit? Well, those who believed. But why didn't they receive it yet? For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's a timing indicator in John that if Christ isn't yet glorified, the Spirit doesn't come. So later we see, for example, this statement, John 14, 16 through 17... He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice another helper. The original parakletos is Christ. The parakletos, the term in Greek, means a defense counselor. Rich families would hire them to be an advocate for the family. That's the idea, is you have a defense attorney, the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, working on your behalf. The same with Christ. Uh, doesn't the Holy Spirit intercede with us or for us with groanings too deep for words? We don't even know how to pray as we ought. So the first helper is Christ. He's going to send another one that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, notice this, future, this future idea here that will be in you. That's the distinction. For example, in the Old Testament, the spirit could be upon David. Mm -hmm. It could be upon someone. But after Pentecost, God is going to dwell with us. And that's what's being expected. So in John chapter 20, let's go to John 20 here. It says, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, was Jesus glorified at that point? No. He was not yet glorified. Jesus had not yet ascended. How do we know that? Because just five verses earlier, Jesus said... As the women were clinging to him after the resurrection, he says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Verse 22 is the evening of this. This is the morning, Sunday morning, resurrection morning. This is resurrection Sunday. I'm sorry, resurrection evening. Resurrection morning, resurrection evening. So the question is, has Jesus ascended? Well, no, it says he had not yet ascended to the Father. Well, if he had not yet ascended, you can't have the indwelling of the Spirit. So the point of this blowing on them and breathing them is a foreshadowing that the greatest event that had ever been predicted in the history of the Bible, the sending of the Spirit which would usher in the last days prophesied by Joel 2.28-32, in fact, indeed would occur. But you and I are now living post that time period where not just some Christians have the Spirit, all Christians do. The, the call, demand, and command for filling isn't for some, it's for all. The command to be filled isn't punctiliar once it's ongoing, present tense, to be continuously. So that's where I'm not quite understanding, I guess, where the idea that some are going to be filled 
at some later experience, and that applies only to some Christians. No, but in the scripture, it says that how much more will the will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Well, exactly. when you accept Christ, that's exactly. the E-N of the Spirit. He comes into all believers upon acceptance and belief, right? Oops. Yes, exactly. Let's, in fact, I have but that right here. But then when he says, but when you ask, he'll give it You're to You're thinking of this passage ask. right here. Yes. Luke eleven thirteen. 13. It says, if you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, here's the issue. What's very interesting is who is he speaking to? Is he speaking to people under the Old Covenant or are they under the New Covenant? The Old Covenant. Has Jesus ascended and been glorified yet? Nope. So again, when it says in Ephesians 4 that Christ ascended into the heavens and he gave gifts, what's the greatest gift that he ever gave? The Holy Spirit. Because by means of the Spirit, you were given the rest of the gifts. So precisely, he's saying to his disciples, you pray for the good gift, the great gift, and this father is certainly, and this is fulfilled at Pentecost, he's going to give you the greatest gift. He's going to give you the spirit. If wicked men give good gifts to their children, how much more is your father going to give the greatest gift of all? That's the idea. Right, to those who ask. Exactly right. Those are believers. In Ephesians 4, in the Greek, the word gifts is in italics because it's not there. Those are actually... Say say it again. In... In Ephesians 4, yes. where we talk about spiritual gifts, well, the word gifts in the Greek is not there. It, those are just spirituals. Okay, well, let me ask you. In 1 Corinthians 12, when he says the Father, in verse 28, he gave some as apostles, and he gave some as prophets, and he gave some as pastors. Doesn't that sound a lot like the gifts that Jesus gave? Yeah, it does. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as teachers, some as pastors, some as evangelists. It's the same. And what's interesting, it's for the edification of the entire body so that we all may reach the fullness, that we may be filled. And so again, you're, pointing, you're actually proving my point where God the Father is the agent of giving those gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. Jesus in Ephesians 4 is the agent who gives those gifts by means of the Spirit as well. The Spirit is the greatest gift that God ever gave. So think of the analogy. I'll close with this. We have a great wedding that's happening. We are the bride as the church. The bridegroom goes away. In the ancient Near East, in Israel, when the bridegroom leaves to comfort his wife while he was gone, his his bride-to-be, he sent her gifts. And what the Bible's depicting is that Christ, the greatest bridegroom of all, gave us the greatest gift of all, the Spirit, who then subsequently dispenses the rest of the gifts to us so that we will be a united bride equipped for every good work. The, the Spirit gave us the scriptures, which equips us for how many good works? 2 Timothy 3.17. Every good work. Every good work. Isn't it interesting? We found today that being filled by the Spirit is synonymous with letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you. That's the point of being filled by the Spirit. Or is your mind going to be dominated by the doctrines of Christ or the debauchery of this age? That's it. So we'll continue this next week. But thank you, Laverne, for the kind comments and questions and challenges. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time together. We pray as we continue this study next week, it will continue to be profitable and help us to understand better the scriptures and the glories of our Trinitarian God who saves us. We also pray today for Bob as he teaches us something that is so related to this that none of us should go beyond that which is written. 
I pray, Lord, that you give him your words, that you give us minds to understand, that we may be not just hearers again, but doers of your word, that we may be transformed in the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.